0: Hello, this is ScriptLock, where we talk about storytelling and video games. I'm Max Volkman. And I'm Nick Volkman. Uh, today's guests are Zoe Franznik and Francesca Ciongrati. Uh Zoe is an associate narrative designer at Obsidian Games, currently working on unannounced projects, and she's also the co-host of the Maniculum podcast, which aims to break down the ivory tower of academia and make story crafting accessible to game devs by deconstructing and adapting medieval texts for modern game design. Uh, Francesca is currently the narrative lead on Around for Primal Game Studios and also the senior narrative designer on Ana Shattered Truth for Designmatic. And previously, she was the game writer on Ori and the Will of the Wisps for Moon Studios, as well as a narrative designer on their unannounced ARPG. Thank you both for coming on today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great to be here. Yeah.
0: And before I get to our first question, oh, I want to we would like to say, as always, that everything I say here represents my opinion and not the views or opinions of Insomniac Games or Sony Interactive Entertainment or Riot Games. Yeah, or Riot Games for Max. I don't like it, Riot. Um,
1: <laughs> I'll jump in and say, same for me and Obsidian as well. Awesome. Well, my Although views represent all of the views of. <laughs> <laughs> great. Great.
0: Um, so, Zoe,
1: how'd you break into video games? Oh, gosh. That's a funny story. Um, I originally, as I sort of told you guys off, off camera, shall we say, I read The Hobbit when I was in the fourth grade and decided that I could do better. And I was grievously wrong, unfortunately, uh, but decided that I wanted to learn how to do story crafting, how to write very well, uh, ultimately to oust Tolkien from his spot as the top you know, fantasy writer of all time. And that led me to write voraciously, and I initially wanted to do that all the way through university, become a professor, etc., etc. And then when I got to that point at university, I said to myself, well, I'm not really going to be able to focus on my writing if I'm a professor, it doesn't exactly make all that much. And that's not where the cutting edge of game of writing really is. And I pivoted and started to think about game design, uh, but didn't really want to go the traditional route. And so I decided to jump into a master's degree of medieval studies, rather than do an MFA. And from there, I started uh, developing the Maniculum podcast as a way to bring game writing and game writing, narrative writing, whether you're an author or uh, if you're just a DM, if you play DD or any other kind of TTRPG, we are trying to give you resources on the Maniculum podcast to write games, write characters through using medieval sources. And I found there was so much untapped potential in those texts and in that whole realm of academia that just wasn't accessible. And I said, this is really cool. And I want to bring this into game writing and just applied, 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 applied. And Obsidian saw what I was doing at the podcast and it just turned out to be a really, really good match. So there I am now.
0: Awesome. Okay, I have a couple questions coming off all this. Uh, were you playing games from a young age?
1: Uh, I was reading more, and I was watching my brother. So I remember I would sit there and announce and talk along as my brother would be playing Star Wars Battlefront on the PS2, <laughs> or as he'd be going through like Lego Harry Potter, or you know whatever the game was. And eventually, he started going more to the uh, shooting games, like, you know, CS and Call of Duty. And I pivoted more toward narrative games and really started getting into that. Um, I mean, Animal Crossing was the game that got me into video games. And I was like, wow, this is cozy and cute, and I really like it. Uh, And then once I realized that video games could be like that, I was like, oh, cool. What about narrative? Where is that? And then I realized oh, I can be part of this story too as the player. And I thought this is a really cool way of telling stories. I didn't even discover D&D until college, actually. So (laughs) video games came first.
0: Was there a game where you had played it and you were like, I I wish I could have worked on that?
1: Oh, gosh. There have been quite a few over the years. I think the big one for me was when I first, first played the Assassin's Creed games or the Uncharted games. That's what it was for me. I loved that kind of adventure. I loved the historicism of Assassin's Creed. And I thought, man, like, this is right up my alley. This is what I love. I could do this.
0: Yeah, I've loved how the Assassin's Creed have seemed to treat the academia part of it more seriously, or at least uh, been more open to bringing it up more, especially with the museum modes. I think that's what they're called.
1: Yes, definitely. And the way that they mapped out Florence was so accurate that I was actually able to get around Florence on my study abroad trip, and I couldn't believe it.
0: You should tell them that. Tell the team (laughs) that. I'm sure they would love that.
1: I should. I should. That'd be great.
0: And what made you want to go into medieval studies in particular?
1: Um, At that point, I had just finished undergrad, and I sort of applied on a whim to Trinity College uh, Dublin's one-year master's program. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, like, I want to be a commercial pilot, sure, but I can take one year to do a medieval studies program. And one year turned into two with COVID, and I just fell in love with that entire arena. And again, with COVID, uh, there were so many layoffs in flying and in the... The industry of uh, pilots and all of that—that that I decided no, this isn't this isn't really what I want to do. But I I've got several pilots in my family, both grandfathers and uh, my dad. So I leaned that way at one point, and I still love flying. But writing and narrative is where my where my heart is at.
0: Sweet. And then, Francesca, I'm going to ask you about how you got into the game industry. But first, I want I now have to ask. Do you also want to oust J.R.R. Tolkien from his ivory tower?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to start first of all with saying, listening to Zoe talk, I'm like, damn, I feel like we're going to be friends. <laughs> because first of all, it turns out I've not had a single original thought in my life, apparently. Um, <laughs> I I also read Tolkien quite young. I was, I, I believe I was nine when I read uh, the trilogy, because my parents said I wasn't allowed to watch the films until I had written uh read the books first and wow. <laughs> yeah, so i rushed to to read to finish the book so i was so i'd be allowed to to see the films um i don't believe i ever felt like i wanted to oust him but i i remember being a you know a huge admirer of uh, of of the world of, of fantasy in general um starting from that point um yeah how i got into into narrative design It's interesting. I took, I took a very similar path and I feel like we, we could have almost crossed paths as well because at some, Mm -hmm. at one point I was, I was almost going to apply to to Trinity College in Dublin. Um, I ended up going to Aberdeen instead for, for half a year. Um, and then, and then I, I applied to Oxford and was accepted there. And, uh, for English language and literature which I never thought was possible because I I grew up in Austria um my family is Hungarian but moved to Austria when I was young and you know most most of most of international students have a really hard time applying to colleges like that because they require a very specific um yeah they have a very specific application process and a very kind of rigorous you you basically need to train your whole life almost to, to get in so it was um, oh, I, I didn't
1: get into Oxford and I applied. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, I was rejected first time around, which is why I went to Aberdeen in mm-hmm. the first place. Um, yeah, so then I managed to get in and uh, and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Um, but I, I felt like such an imposter in a way because, you know, I had I, come from Austria. I hadn't I didn't go to an English school, so I wasn't familiar really with, you know, the English style of essay writing and all of that. Um, so when it came time to choose the course of English that you wanted to do, because in, um, in English Language and Literature, you can do either Course 1 or Course 2. Course 1 is the very, is the, is the kind of the mainstream one that people usually choose. It's kind of, you, you kind of get walked through the, the canon, the, the whole course of English literature throughout history, really. Um, and Course 2 is like the one that the weirdos pick. (laughs) It's more of a specialist course, and it's, it's basically focused on, uh, medieval language and literature like Icelandic sagas you oh. you study uh old English basically the whole time and um and it's just like very yeah it's just essentially where the widows go uh so I was like, oh my god, finally a place for me for me <laughs> and uh it helped as well that old english was is kind of a mixture between english german and uh and latin uh, and I, mm-hmm. I I studied Latin at school and and spoke German so I was like, okay this might be a place for me. And I I felt the same way as you with regards to medieval uh, literature, where I was like, this is such untapped, you know, all these untapped stories that just aren't being really like reused in in any really meaningful way. Um, I mean, with obvious exceptions, like, you know, um, uh, Game of Thrones and stuff, which is, which is definitely uh, inspired by some of those. But yeah, I just felt like there was so much, so much more there that that has been forgotten and that that I think is so magical and, and whimsical, uh, and I really fell in love with it. And then towards the end of my degree, I uh, I started playing The Witcher Three. That was the first video game I bought. I never really played video games when I was younger because we didn't really own consoles. And then we finally got, got a P- uh, PlayStation Three, and that was what I I bought The Witcher on. And I started playing that and I don't know what gave me the idea, but I remember standing in the shower one day trying to think of what to write my dissertation on. And I was like, why don't I just write it on video games? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, yeah, that's what I did. And actually, my proposal for the for the dissertation initially got rejected because they were like, well, video games, that's that doesn't count as English language and literature, even though people were writing dissertations under the umbrella of english on uh like magazine covers and music albums and stuff so but video games you know is still such a i i guess like un, undiscovered territory or it's just just so new that um it kind of scared the professors a little bit but then my uh my supervisor managed to persuade them so i ended up writing my dissertation on walking simulators, such as Firewatch, Sammy Parable, What Remains of Edith Finch, um, yeah, and some references to some others here and there. And, yeah, and that's that's kind of what started it, and then I, I ended up, um, so that course is three years long. Uh, I met my boyfriend in university and his was four years, so I was like, okay, I'm not ready to <laughs> venture out into the world of, <laughs> uh, of adults quite yet, so I, I decided to go do a masters in, in video games first for one more year so that we kind of finish our degrees at the same time. And, um, yeah. And that was, that was amazing. That was here in London at the university of arts. And, uh, while I was there, I found a job at moon studios as a writer.
0: What was the masters in video games? Like also, I feel like I've squandered like half my life listening to both your stories of (laughs) like everything you've done. (laughs) It's
3: amazing.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't think you have, because I remember, sorry, I don't know, I can't tell your voices apart, but <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> yeah, so I, yeah, listening to Max, I don't think you, you squandered your life at all. I, that was I next, actually, excited said it,
0: but that's cool. good to hear.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she talk, she but I know you, you guys have very similar career trajectories, so yeah. yeah. Thank so you your, your, your guys are fine, trust me.
1: <laughs> Thank Plus, you. any any way you get into video games is going to be unorthodox. Exactly. Yeah. In, yeah. In that way, like there's very few degree programs that will get you straight into the industry. So you always have to, you always have to have a roundabout way. Yeah. yeah.
0: No, yeah. we very much fell ass backwards. In
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least you had a soft landing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but
0: yeah, tell me about these mat this masters.
2: Yeah. Um. The masters was was expensive looking back at it i'm always like i don't you know it it did provide me a a, like space within which to create you know and 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 have the beginnings of a a portfolio which without which i obviously um would have had to find a different path into into video games um but yeah i you know when i when i finished it i was kind of i realized that the video game industry is very kind of prizes uh, experience above all else. So I realized that people didn't necessarily, like, I didn't feel like I had a, an easier job finding finding a job with having done a video game master's than than without it necessarily. Um, and the other thing about, I feel like with video game courses is that they're, they're so young, like it was only a couple of years old and it, it very much felt like um, a little bit experimental, you know, uh, we were in a class with, with a a bunch of people, I I think there was like 20 of us, and they had grouped in people who were very experienced coders and people who had never coded uh, before in their lives. And so when they were trying to teach us how to code, it was this awkward thing of like, well, you know, people who know what they're doing are kind of bored, and then people who don't know what they're doing, this is way too fast for them, and they have no idea what's going on. Um, But yeah, so it was kind of broken up into, into sections of like, you know, project one, project two, project three, and and we were kind of more or less left to uh to to figure it out ourselves and in 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 many ways that was actually a really good thing because um because you could you could essentially take control of of the projects that you were doing and and just kind of just get really hands-on and and do whatever you felt like yeah so at the end of the day i I don't regret it but certainly i do think that video game courses have have a long way to go um to yeah to be these like established kind of experience courses that that you where you really feel like yeah that was that was worth the 10 grand (laughs) i spent (laughs) on it
0: (laughs) then also going off of a previous answer we were talking about uh like all the untapped stories in medieval literature Mm. i want to ask both of you what would first thing that comes to mind is like the most untapped story that could be like used in story like in games or just in storytelling in general that people don't like know about or don't or should be thinking about more now?
2: Ooh, Ooh. oh, there's so many. (laughs) There really are. I mean, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, for me, one one thing I I loved reading about was uh, Icelandic sagas. I thought they were so cool. Um, They're great, and then you've got, like, uh, you've got all these, like, medieval romances. That whole tradition is incredibly fascinating, like Tristan and Isolde, um, and all, all all, all those stories.
1: Yeah, the lay of Marie de France as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. I think, I mean, any of the Icelandic sagas would be incredible, especially because they're family stories. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't fall in the traditional storytelling of, oh, hey, we have our single protagonist. It usually follows a family line. Mm -hmm. uh, And it also splits between, it doesn't follow father to son to father to son. It can follow um father to son to wife to daughter to husband to son yeah for instance and so you get this re- very very complex interesting web of connections that i think could be beautiful um the one that really pops up for me is the irish epic poem the toin bacooling <gasps> yes <laughs> yes <laughs> Like okay I, I swear like we need to get a team together to I don't wait don't give
2: anyone ideas because <laughs> I want to be working on a game cuz I I really want to found a studio one day and I I I like sat down with a friend of mine um last year and we we started but we there's been a bit of a lull but yeah that's okay. Um, source
1: material. <laughs> if you do the toin, call me <laughs> up. Yes,
3: I'm serious. On, I am so serious.
1: <laughs> yes, because the the toin itself, and I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound absolutely bizarre. Mm-hmm. The premise of this story starts with a king and a queen having pillow talk and trying to compare their comparative wealth of who's who's the richer. And it comes down to the fact that the queen does not have a bull that is as nice as her husband's bull, and so they have a they have a raid across Ireland to go and steal the best bull in Ireland. And the hero, well, the hero, understandably so. Of Bulls course. are very important. Yes, <laughs> um, so. This is how it starts, ridiculously. And then the hero of our story is Kukulin, and his name is the Hound of Kulin. So he's sort of like um, the Hound in Game of Thrones is a good comparison, except he's this little teenage kid who can't grow a beard. But his secret power is that he goes into what is called a warp spasm or a torque, depending on how you translate it. And he essentially hulks out. Like one eye goes into his face. The other one comes out of his face. <laughs> he like spews blood out of his head. All his war gear like literally starts screaming. <laughs> and wait,
0: wait, wait. <laughs> like his armor starts screaming?
1: His armor starts screaming. Okay. <laughs> and he's got this magic spear called the gay bolga, which is made out of a um, stingray's tail. It's like a harpoon.
0: Why hasn't Robert Eggers made this to a movie yet? <laughs>
1: exactly. Right? Right? <laughs> it's
0: Otherwise, so- I, f- I want to make a movie about a screaming armor. <laughs> yeah.
1: And so you, you have this amazing, rich saga and um, just the, the entire quest of them trying to get there. And then a bunch of like family conflict going on in the background and so on and so forth. And... Like to me, you can either make Kukulan, like the boss that you have to fight, or you can make Kukulan the protagonist, where mm-hmm. you know you you can t- you can torque out or Hulk out, uh, and then have a cooldown period for that or whatever. And like, there's so many there's so many opportunities just right there, and no one has figured this out yet. And I'm sitting over here like, come on, come on, let me do this.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's the the one kind of overarching thought that i had studying medieval literature was just like this is wild <laughs> this is wild i don't know what those people were on but the things they came up with is just amazing the breadth of the just the imagination and everything mm-hmm. you know the mm-hmm. the the myths and the legends that that kind of were spin-offs of those ideas and stuff it's just amazing and i just i i would love to reignite that in some way and um yeah, certainly. You know the, those Irish uh, stories are uh, something to behold as well. What's always interested me is um, thinking about stories that we've potentially lost and trying, having like basically uncovering them again. Um, and Irish sagas are, are luckily very well preserved. But I'm mm-hmm. I'm Hungarian, and um, Hungary before Catholicism became widespread was was uh, you know had a pantheon of gods of its own and and you know a wealth of myth and legend that obviously has has kind of been passed down uh through word of mouth and and fragments of it remain here and there but i i would really love to kind of go on this on this journey and and try and scrape together the stories that you know that could potentially still be found and and create something of that um yeah
1: yeah absolutely like and honestly it makes game of thrones look tame yeah no exactly (laughs) It truly does.
0: Man, Western storytelling has been slacking It has. It has.
2: <laughs> because, because the source is, you know, people, I feel like people don't dig deep enough. I mean, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why, you know, I completely agree uh, that, you know, all all the, what are the, sorry, I'm blanking on the name right now. The games that you brought up, the ones that are really focused on history. Oh, like uh, Assassin's, Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed, yeah, 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 Assassin's Creed. I mean, that's why that's so great, is they have like this, this, this source you know that they can just like pick ideas from Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. yeah because they have this really historical focus but i think there's a
1: lot more there to be to be found 100 percent
0: i'm gonna let my ignorance show a bit more and ask maybe you don't neither of you know the answer to this but like did like a form of medieval storytelling like of all the many forms did one form just get super popular and that's what is is popular now and then these other cooler forms of storytelling got (laughs) left by the wayside
2: um, it's not quite that uh, straightforward there's there's many 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 like even I mean Zoe mentioned the the family sagas but even even in Iceland there's there's many other like different types of sagas genres of sagas as well mm-hmm. and um, yeah and there's so many so many various types of, of literature that became popularized I mean a lot of it was uh, you know very influenced by Christianity um, yeah. for obvious oh, reasons yeah. um, you know there's a lot of like apocryphal tales that you know didn't didn't make it into the bible but uh you know there's all these like different kinds of old english poems and stuff there's i don't think it was quite like you know there was one kind of prevalent um genre that then made it into the subsequent eras and then um i think i think bits and pieces of, of everything kind of influence subsequent traditions but yeah we just don't necessarily remember those as much in the current uh zeitgeist i guess
1: (laughs) yeah i'll contrast that a little bit i think the biggest uh genre that really came forward was the romance which as modern readers understand it a a romance story is like two people falling in love blah 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 Mm -hmm. but in the medieval world a romance was an adventure story so a fairy tale could be a romance and a lot of the chivalric uh stories were romances king arthur is fundamentally a romance um and then a lot of the icelandic sagas pulled the french chivalric romances and then translated them and made them i have a lot to say, to say about is. that
2: yeah go off go off <laughs> okay okay so i because i wrote a whole paper on this and i thought it was fascinating because basically um i was i was looking into different ways of of emotional expression in different uh, traditions and so yes it's correct. The Icelandic, um, I, th- I believe it was the Norwegian king who commissioned the French sagas to be translated into Icelandic in order to, because because being associated with the French tradition um, and having popularizing those those uh, medieval romances in his court meant that he, you know, it was like a sign of we belong and we're also cool, like the you mm-hmm. know like the Central Europeans, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, so he commissioned them to be translated. But interestingly enough, you know, uh, Iceland had this, this pre-established existing literary tradition, but it was very different. So they the Icelandic uh, Icelandic literature did not have that um, very rich expression of emotional interiority that the French uh, romances did have. So, for example, you'd have in Tristan and Isolde, you'd have hundreds and hundreds of lines of, for example, Tristan going on and on and on about his feelings. And, you know, oh, I, should I do this? Should I do that? Da, da, da. Um, kind of musing and and and, uh, when that was translated into Icelandic the story was translated almost word for word in fact you can use Icelandic translations to reconstruct missing parts of the French romances because they're that accurate except for the sections that (laughs) have like emotional parts where where someone's like expressing their thoughts and their interior emotions (laughs) that that is like shortened to Tristan pondered a little bit into one line like that's what yep, it's cond- yep. condensing. because <laughs> because the audience is just not used to that kind of mode of express of like emotional expression and so it was just a way of combining these two traditions in a way that would would still appeal to an icelandic audience that was used to a very different literary mode mm-hmm. um and i just anyway it, it, this is a tangent but i just think that's fascinating
1: my my favorite one of those is the switch from Beast Claver to Tiadell Saga, which mm-hmm. is a uh, French like werewolf story. But the Icelandic people were like, "Yeah, wolf. You know, we've we've had a lot of wolf shapeshifters, so that's not really that extraordinary." So we're going to have him become a polar bear,
0: and that's nice. my favorite
1: edit of of all of their weird little. Wacky <laughs> ones. But yeah, I would I would say the. The romances eventually became um like what we would call modern fiction novels, so I think mm-hmm. that tradition is slowly what came to dominate uh but again, like there are so many traditions from all over the place that it's you see them everywhere um but the more the the one overarching one I would argue would be the the romance
2: I uh, would argue that actually also these um these like you know the the like pearl the Gawain poet the pearl mm-hmm, poem mm-hmm. and those kinds of like those religious writings were very dominant as well and definitely carried over as well into definitely uh, yeah
0: I love this I love all of this <laughs> <laughs> we've already uh, been talking about this about this a little bit but just to keep it going down the track are there any parallels between medievalism and game design that you've noticed or obviously it's been influencing both your works in games right
2: yeah i mean for me the reason why i felt such a a pull towards both is because it just felt a little bit like i was going off the beaten path with both
1: choices 100 percent. yeah
2: um yeah i don't i'm not sure in the practice of medievalism whether there's parallels that can be drawn um besides you know it being kind of this like untapped wealth of knowledge and stories that people don't usually kind of turn to. Um, but certainly, yeah, it just it just feels like this, like, quirky, <laughs> weird thing to be doing. And, and so, I, yeah, I enjoy both.
1: Yeah, I, I would say the biggest, because I, I sat on this question for a long time, because at first blush, medievalism and video games don't have any real connection, aside from, like, pulling medieval stories into video games. Mm. But the the one that I found was that when you are going through and reading medieval literature, the older the text you're reading is, the more you have to sort of fit yourself in and try and discover the narrative because we may have lost a certain section or we don't have the context. Mm. So when you're writing video games, you have to provide the player context. And if you do that well, you do it through great exposition where the player picks things up through dialogue or through their environment without, you know, an NPC coming up to them and saying, wow, look at that mountain over there. I wonder how long it would take to climb that. I guess I'd better find out or, you know, whatever. Uh, Hopefully it's not that obvious that, oh, look, there's a mountain in the distance and that's going to be plot important later. Uh, But you have to do a very similar thing when you're reading through medieval texts, you have to figure out what the context is for yourself and pick up on context clues that would be Mm. important for readers of that time that we don't have nowadays. So this is why a lot of people find Shakespeare to be so difficult in high school is they, their teachers are not giving them the context or we don't have the context anymore. Uh, And the further back you go, the more you encounter that.
2: Yeah, that's actually, yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. But, but hearing you say that, it really makes me think of the metrical charms, mm, the
3: mm-hmm. old English
2: metrical charms that I, I found absolutely fascinating. And I would say that, um, you know, what you said about context, absolutely there is a parallel there between, um, you know, writing or like creating video game stories and, uh, and kind of looking for the context in these. But I feel like it's also like almost like playing a video game. Yes, you know, oh, yeah. because you're 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 always looking for you know these this extra information. And for example, in the metrical charms, um, these are uh, spoken spoken incantations to produce a particular effect. Broadly speaking, there's many many different types of them. So there, there's like charms to make a field fertile, or charms to help someone give birth, um, charms to find lost cattle, etc. etc. or to heal a wound. Right. And there's a lot of, the, the reason why they're so interesting is because there's a lot of missing information within the charm itself because it was assumed that there would be someone with the knowledge of how to perform this charm
3: mm-hmm.
2: reading it, right? So yeah. we're almost like there's information in the, the gaps that the text leaves mm-hmm. and you have to, yeah, it's like kind of like the, when, when you're drawing something, they say to look as much as at the, at the blank space. As, as the space that is filled in with sm- something because that in itself holds information too and so yeah it kind of feels like you're you you're playing a video game you know one of those ones where you're p- piecing together the story and you're you know it's it's mm-hmm. kind of yeah your curiosity is at the forefront and, and that's what's driving everything and it's it's an it's a very very fascinating and fun process
1: and the nice part about that especially is that in both cases, you have an author you have a game designer and you as a player know that there is a game designer you know that the puzzle is solvable and so Mm. similarly when you're looking at the charms or when you're looking at one of these poems you know maybe you'll have a couple lines missing or something like that but if you if you do have the whole text even if you don't have the outside context you still know you have an author so it is solvable you just need to look between the lines to find that context and maybe you look at other texts maybe you look at One of my favorite things is looking at a text in a manuscript and then looking at the other manuscripts around it. Yes. Looking at the marginalia and the the stuff in the margins. (laughs) Look at that and say, like, oh, okay, so this is telling me that the text is written in Latin, but they're using a Welsh gloss. So I know that I can start looking for Welsh clues to fit the context, for instance. Yeah. No, manuscript
2: culture is absolutely, absolutely just wonderful. Um, because as you said, yes, these texts do have an author, but that is is almost muddied by the fact that obviously, you know, we before the printing press, it, a, a particular text would get copied. Mm-hmm. Who knows how many times by various scribes who would make uh, edits, Errors, yeah, yeah, edits <laughs> on purpose or not, uh, intentionally or unintentionally, and then you can learn a lot about uh, about the context in which the the you know the the text was written through the kind of mistakes that these these scribes made. For example. If a scribe would make a, a spelling error on a certain word, one of the assumptions you can make is maybe that uh, original, that source material that they were working with, the language at that point had become so uh, archaic to them that they that word was no longer in use, so they didn't really know how to spell it or what, what to do with it, for example. Mm-hmm. And there's there's loads of other little, little instances like that that just kind of you see this world unfolding before you, and... Um, that is is just feels so unexplored and and uh, and so new and yeah it truly it, it really is like you're you're in a video game <laughs> and you're <laughs> you're solving a puzzle.
0: Is there any game that's close to representing manuscript culture, either indirectly or directly,
1: that you know of? Mm. Oh man, the one that I really like, and this this goes broadly for a lot of different games, but the ones where I notice it a lot and really enjoy is when game designers put little diegetic clues in. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like whether the character has a notebook that you can go back and look at, or uh, one of the cool bits and pieces in um, the last of us two that I noticed was in one of the rooms, there is a ongoing abandoned TTRPG game at a table. And you can piece that apart and look at that. And then you can figure out, oh, the players were the next-door neighbors, and you figure this out based on the notes that they're leaving each other right before they had to leave. And so little little things like that, I love when you get to explore an environment and learn more about the culture through either talking to people or through the clues that they leave behind.
2: Yeah, I think, for me, it makes me think about uh, think of Outer Wilds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've, you've played it?
0: I've got to play it. I swear. I'm going
2: to play it. <laughs> Zoe sounds like she's played it. I've, I've played some of it. I haven't finished it. It's so good, um, and it's one of those games that makes incredible use of uh, the player's natural instinct to 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 explore and to look for things, look for patterns, and look for things that make something make sense. And I feel like I feel like that's kind of where a lot of games aren't brave enough to. To, to put that power in, in the player's hands and just rely on that natural instinct to to figure things out and to, f- you know, to discover knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Outer Worlds really leans into it and just gives you this, this like, more or less, you know, open, you, you can float around in a, in a spaceship, so it's like this open world and several planets to explore and doesn't really give you anything more than that other than just, like, you know, go, be free. Yeah. <laughs> And, and there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of clues to pick up and, and, you know, you, yeah, it's just very curiosity driven. And I, I really think that's where the strength of video games lies is that it, yeah, it just, it just kind of peaks that, um, that, that interest and that instinct that, that I think most of us have.
0: Kelsey, if you're listening, we're sorry, we'll get to it soon. (laughs) It made me think of Oberdin. Yes!
2: Oh my god, Oberden! I was gonna, yeah. Oh, I'm not familiar absolutely. with that one. Oh, it's by the same guy who made uh, Papers, Please.
1: Oh, okay, okay.
0: It's called The Return of the Oberden. Got it, got it. Wait, Francesca, you'll probably do a better job explaining it than I will oh. if you want to explain <laughs> it to Zoe. Uh,
2: yeah, so so basically, you are the, um, what is it called? Like the, the insurance.
0: Player. I was gonna say insurance agent, but I wasn't sure if I was right. Yeah. Are you an, are you an auditor?
2: Yeah, yeah, you're an auditor, and you're you're there to assess the damage on a on like a ghost ship, like a ship that has oh, returned to shore, but there's cool. everyone on it is like dead or gone. Um, oh, I love
1: those. Yeah,
2: yeah, and so and then you have this like you have this magical thing watch that gives you the ability to go back in time and and like uh, witness how certain things transpired, mm-hmm. and um, and then through that you you piece together what happened on the, on the ship to everyone.
0: But you only have, like, you have the ship manifest, like, with their names and what their titles are supposed to, or what they are. But you're, supposed, you're matching them up with the bodies that you find.
1: Oh, yeah. gotcha. through, like, through, like,
0: what they were doing when they, when they died. Yeah,
1: that's really and
0: cool. And it's a lot of, like, listening to snippets of dialogue and seeing where they are, these pictures you find of them. And yeah. making a lot of associations where the game is not telling you what to think. Exactly. Yeah. explicitly. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and some of the clues are just really tiny like you you know you blink and you miss it kind of thing mm-hmm. and others others are easier and bigger and and you just kind of um go from body to body essentially. It's it's really really fun.
1: Yeah, I remember Horizon Zero Dawn does that very well, especially at the beginning of the game when you explore you know the underground caverns and all the uh, detritus that's around and you find those little recordings. Mm. Yeah, The
2: Lost World. Yes. Yeah.
0: So related to all that what we're talking about, I also wanted to ask how do both of you balance how, what you tell the player with how much you explain things? Like mm-hmm. of the balance of you want to leave things to the player to connect things and fill in the blanks in their own way but, mm-hmm. versus like I want to make sure they understand this cool thing and yeah. I got to be explicit about it.
2: I think at some point you have to just take that leap of. Obviously, you've got a you've got a playtest and stuff, and and make sure that you're not being just completely, you know, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think at some point you have to let go of that desire to be like, I I really want everyone to understand this this really cool thing that I did, you know, because when players really get that sense of like I could have missed this, but I found it, that's that's an amazing feeling mm-hmm. and. It just, it is, it's incom- incomparable to the feeling that you get where, like, okay, well, everyone's, you know, you have to see this, and it's not really that same. Like, for example, Zoe, you mentioned that TTRPG in, in The Last of Us. Yes, yes. That's not, like, a golden path thing that's,
1: like, shoved in your face, is no. it? No, oh, you can run right by it and just yeah. not, not even know it's there. Yeah, I... I definitely lean into the, if you don't get it, that's okay, camp, um, <laughs> which I, I do this in my own personal writing, which in my writing group, I've got a friend who just can't stand it because he loves everything to be explained. Like, you could, honestly, you could give him an encyclopedia and he'd be happy. Um, <laughs> and I love him, but also that's not how I write. Um, yeah, I love having those little secrets uh, because for me, it's not making sure everybody can understand it and, oh, it's so cool. The reward for me is when players take the time to figure that out. And of course, you want the context to be available for players to understand and figure out what went on. But also, I'm not going to hold their hand for the entire thing. I want them to be curious. I want them to do a little bit of digging. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't I don't necessarily want them to have to like, Google something to understand the context of what's going on that yeah. should be present in the game. Uh, but, like, yeah, if they want to skip it and they just want to do the, you know, shoot and loot part of the game, go for right. it. But if you are here for the story, then I'm going to make sure there's a bunch of stuff that you can find that you can bring to other people and they'll go, what? I missed that. Yeah.
2: I think it's a little bit kind of, and this might be controversial for me to compare the two, um,
1: <laughs> but
2: I think it's a little bit like Ori versus Hollow Knight. You know, Hollow Knight mm-hmm. Ori is very, you know, and I worked on it, so so God bless the Ori games. But um, <laughs> but Ori is very straightforward and very. It's kind of like a storybook, you know, like the the story is revealed to everyone. Um, and there's 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 a couple of of nice things like tidbits hidden here and there in the world. Um, but for the most part, all all these scenes are are you know the story is is understandable for everyone that played, and it's it's very straightforward. Um, Hollow Knight is very different. I think Hollow Knight offers that experience where, where the story is not explicit, it's not linear, um, it's y- yeah, every player kind of either finds pieces of it or doesn't, um, and you can absolutely complete the game without really paying attention to the story at all. Um, and on the contrary, you can you can finish the game with you know doing this whole hunt for, for like little pieces of knowledge that were, were hidden here and there on the map. Oh yeah, and um, and I can I think you know I'm also a streamer on Twitch, and I I sometimes like to look at you know how obviously it's been a couple of years, of years since both games come out, and it's just you know from almost from like an academic perspective I'm always interested to see how how those two games hold up and how you know in terms of replayability like how what what is it that appeals to players kind of long term what which style of storytelling, um, and obviously gameplay counts as well and it seems like Hollow Knight has been the winner in that regard at least because people people keep coming back to that game because there's so much to explore Mm -hmm. um and it just offers so much even beyond just like kind of the the first superficial impression that you get
1: yeah i think game devs tend to underestimate how much they can trust the player with the ability to explore and the ability Mm -hmm. to want i mean gamers are creative people they want to dig into everything they can find. And so it's most rewarding when you can give that to them. And so maybe you have, I don't know, the higher ups or the marketing department who's like, oh, I'm worried about this or that or the other thing. Like we have to make sure that the lowest common denominator can get it. It's like, no, it's okay. People will replay a game if there's always something to find. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree.
0: And I don't, with, I don't think Elden Ring or like Dark Souls are like the, the hardest games in the world or like the most obtuse, like they don't have story or whatever. Like I think, but I'm hopeful that with the success of Elden Ring, it'll let people like go, oh, it's, it's okay. We don't have to hold their hand as much mm-hmm. with everything we do. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah,
2: I think we, we need to be careful and make a distinction between providing people uh, access to the story through, you know, uh, in a way that Hollow Knight and, like, Outer Wilds does, through hints here and there, but ultimately giving the player freedom. Like, that's a different accessibility discussion to the other accessibility discussion that is raging around Elden Ring, which is more to do with, like, gameplay difficulty. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. yes, precisely. In which case, yeah, because on that side of the debate, I'm 100% for, like, making things as accessible as possible. Um, yeah. Oh, I and, play yeah. story mode every time.
1: Yep.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because this is a different, like, story is, is a different debate, I think. Yeah,
1: 100%.
0: Max of Speed Horizon 2 on story mode. I'm very oh, curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have the insight to this, but I'm very because cu- if you played Horizon 2 early on, Aloy was very talkative about leading you on, like, where you needed to go, mm. and they patched that out to, like, to pull it back. But I'm very curious, like, how, what led them to doing that? I Besides the internet like, complaining about it.
2: Wait, you mean you mean so in her in Horizon One, Aloy, Aloy provided no, more hints? no,
0: in two, in when two she f-
2: provided more hints.
0: When two, for, like she was, she's constantly giving, she was constantly giving hints and like yeah. giving you objective stuff and like maybe I should go to my stash. Yeah, maybe I
2: noticed I that, yeah, <laughs> <Or it's laughs> I noticed just, that I commented on it because so I watched my boyfriend play it, um, and I remember being like like dude. like i asked him like is that not a you know a little annoying for you that she's constantly telling you what to do or like even when there's a puzzle she sp- she'll be like hmm maybe i should try that wall you know <laughs> it's just yeah. like yeah, just yeah. let let him figure it out like he'll get there mm-hmm. but he was like he was like no it's you know it's fine like I, I i wouldn't have known otherwise um so i guess it just like depends on the on the player and i, I think it's I think if you're allowed to... to, Like, if that would be a setting that you could kind of switch on and off, I think that would be, like, ideal. Because some people just prefer it that
0: way. Yeah. I wish we could have done it on Ratchet because the way we did it on Ratchet was basically if the player is in one place for, like, 20 or 30 seconds and they haven't gone to the next place, then we have the line going, like, maybe I should go up to this cliff or maybe I (laughs) should use this gun. Like, oh, that looks strange. I should shoot it. And I... I hated writing them every time. Yeah. yeah. But it's
1: hard to balance.
0: Yeah. But just toggling them off that would have been great. I wanna I I wanna ask our accessibility people if we can do that yeah, next time.
2: Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: I think on Miles we went it changed a lot, but I think we, we it ended on just like there was like a ping button where like you can scan the environment. Like if you ping three times, then he'll start giving you hints on what to do if you're mm-hmm. like trying to find out where your objective is. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, because I'm trying to think in Outer Wilds whether there's anything like that. And I think all there is really is just the um, the log system. And then yeah, if it. you haven't found something, it's like, it just says there's more to explore here. So you're just, yeah, you're just left to like, explore until you find something interesting. But obviously that can lead to frustration and, and you know, mm-hmm. you always risk losing losing players who just, yeah, who just give up.
0: I had never played Outer Wilds yet. This I don't know why I'm thinking about it now, but it feels like it'd be, no, I shouldn't even say it. this. is like, I'm gonna cut this out, but, <laughs> like, a way to do tips like that is like, you Outer not a you to just go into your spaceship and there's like a emergency, break glass in case of emergency <laughs> box, where it's like, here, okay, here. here's the tips. Here's like a, here's a map of everything. Here's like a fold out. Well, that's oh, what yeah. they have. The PS5 has that infrastructure to do that. Cause they have uh, like the first party games do this where they have like a the hint system where they have they have video walkthroughs for like every objective in the game
2: it's hard though because it's like you know on the one hand if you provide that uh, you know for for puzzles because it, okay so this is different from like f- mechanical difficulty right because you know that I think is like okay if people can't keep up with the speed and stuff like that's a different question but if it's like a a, a, a puzzle yeah you know that arguably you know most players would be able to do but you do give them that out you know that hint system or that like freight glass in case of emergency you know it's like would players who who didn't have that opportunity would they have kept trying and figured it out for themselves and had that sense of revelation you know if they didn't know that there was uh that was the option to just get the answer from something Do you know I what think
0: I, mean? I think most people like most gamers now like will go like but slam the out to the wall like a couple times and then just look up a guide
1: yeah that's yeah, true yeah i think it comes down more to the player in that case it's like oh well they're gonna look up a guide regardless versus no they're gonna see if they can get it and every yeah. everybody has a different threshold for that
0: yeah and now i'm realizing my my break last case emergency idea is bad anyways because if i was a player i would just see i go like Maybe there, that's not actually a help thing. Maybe there's something I should do with that anyway. Yeah. I, need, yeah. I need to break it.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and what's I the mean, penalty for doing it? Yeah. yeah.
2: You would really need like a, cele- like a thing, like a la Celeste, you know, where it's like, like a breaking the fourth wall kind of t- tooltip, being like, this is here, we are the developers telling you, yeah. please don't mm-hmm. break this glass unless <laughs>
1: it's not part of the game unless
2: you're
1: stuck. Yeah, but yeah, yeah,
2: I agree. It's not the most elegant.
1: Professor Layton had hint coins. Which was helpful. Yeah, I did enjoy
0: those. <laughs> that's an interesting thing you bring up, though, Francesca. Where it's because mm. if you played Hades, they have the God Mode oh, that's in that's yeah. in the the start menu. But would you would it have been better if that was in like part of the actual in game? Like you went to a character to turn it on, and it was like a character mm-hmm. that you talked to, Basically your door, call you like. A, but <laughs> no. But do you, do you would you trust it less if it was in game? Would you? Is it better that it's just a uh, oh. Like a just a menu setting because like it's not it's not tied to any of the factions or like your dad's yeah. like you're not gonna get fucked over it's impartial it's, it's this bland menu item in yeah. the start mm-hmm. menu.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think you answered your question. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I, no, I th- I think yeah, I think I think it's better in that case that it's not kind of contextualized within the game because it's, it's very deliberately kind of like an an external thing, right? In Hades. Yeah. Um, kind of because Hades,
0: yeah. your dad would. Talk shit about you then if you turn it on. Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it makes you think of oh sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say it really depends on whether your quote unquote narrator for the game is trustworthy or untrustworthy. Mm. You know, like if you go to this character and ask for help, are they gonna screw you over? Is it a trick? Can the player trust them? Like it really, really depends on that whether you make it diegetic or not.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, it makes me think of escape rooms. Yeah. <laughs> escape rooms, I remember at uni, one of the, one of my favorite modules or projects was that we had to design an escape room and build it within. like, I think we had three weeks for the whole thing, for, for con- conceptualizing it and building it. Um, and, yeah, and obviously, you know, everything within the room, you tell the players, like, please don't touch this, you know, don't look at that, and they, it's like they don't even hear it, you know. Mm-hmm. Anything that is in within, that's within that room is kind of fair game. Um so it's almost like, you know, I would I would kind of compare the Hades menu uh explanation with with just telling players certain things like outside of the room, like, you know what I mean? Cuz th- when they're outside of the room, they're not in that mode of like everything here could be a clue, you know? Yeah, exactly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Maybe the Hades thing could work if it, you just chose it in your bedroom. And it was like, you look in the mirror and like, I'm tired. I'm just gonna turn this on.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then I go out. No one else really knows about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I can see that being Yeah.
0: All right, what, what question should I do next? Because we, we've only done, like, <laughs> two from this list. <laughs> um, See, this
1: is what you get when you get two medievalists and two yeah. right on. No,
0: I'm just happy this worked out. <laughs> yeah, this is great.
2: I'm having a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm happy to like keep going in and, and, yeah. any direction. Yeah. yeah,
0: Awesome. All right, I'm going to do a non-medieval one right now. It's because we we're talking about Ori a bit, which mm-hmm. has like less dialogue than other games. And so I wanted to ask both of you, would you rather tell stories with dialogue or without?
1: Ooh. See, this one's an easy one for me. I would rather tell stories with dialogue because to tell stories without dialogue, either you're using written, which I guess I sort of chunk in with dialogue or you're doing mostly visual or audio Mm -hmm. like storytelling. And I am not good at either of those. Those are not my forte. So I will always choose with dialogue, but I, I love playing games that are primarily audiovisual storytelling as well. Yeah. yeah. I think
2: it's, it's such a tough one for me because I, I'm really, I love, I've always loved drawing and art and recently I've gotten into, into animation and um, there's a lot of, I mean, it, it makes me think of games like Journey, mm, you know? Definitely. And uh, I definitely think that, that games told without dialogue through kind of like, you know, just just like environmental cues and stuff can be so powerful at, in just like such a different way um, than stories with dialogue. And I, I think it's kind of, you know, it makes me think of the, uh, there's like a, a famous animation studio, I think they're called like Globalins or something in France. And they have this whole YouTube channel and and they, they basically just post like uh, animations that I think their students do. Um, or just their studio does, or whatever. And some have dialogue, and some don't. And I-, I couldn't tell you which I prefer, honestly. They're they're both just incredibly powerful in different ways. Um, yeah, yeah. I, ca- I can't choose. <laughs> Maybe I'll just choose without dialogue, so we balance
1: each other there out. Go. There we go. So, I have no drawing or or. Um skill in in those arenas so for me mm. i i love both of them but if i had to choose how to do one it's going to be with dialogue because that's the only one that i can functionally do
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. well one of my favorite things is storyboarding stuff like storyboarding mm-hmm. scenes and stuff mm-hmm. so i'm like i love that set that uh i whenever i i think I'm, I'm planning a story i think very visually um so yeah mostly like without dialogue so yeah actually yeah maybe i'll, I'll yeah i'll stick with the without dialogue one
0: I was just talking with an animator yesterday about how under, we feel like uh, Gendi Tartakovsky is really underappreciated in terms of how he does storytelling and with like Samurai Jack and Primal, mm. and mm-hmm. it was like I've had to write so many scenes of dialogue lately, which I love writing dialogue, but I had, I wrote one uh, cinematic that didn't. That was like one line of dialogue. Everything else is all visual storytelling and, and action based, and it was like oh god this feels so nice and Mm -hmm. just being able to tell things with a stance or with just like looks and pacing felt so great to me and i'm like Mm -hmm. i think that games in general a lot like a lot of a games are not they could uh learn to be quieter like not talk as much what's also you oh yeah i think at least like for us coming from a lot of independent work or like lower budget games, you come into AAA games, it's easy to, you're used to, you have to get, you the narrative, you, like, you have to get across all of your emotion in this VO or written text or dialogue. Mm. You don't have the luxury in lower budget stuff to like rely on actors giving you nonverbal storytelling. Yes. Which is just through acting. And so, you, often enough, you can just cut a lot of your dialogue out and let the actor do the storytelling for you and it'll feel that much more, more powerful for it.
2: Yeah, but I think even in in kind of lower budget studios, you you just have to be very smart about the way that you like kind of like the character design and stuff like that. Because because yeah. again, if you if you look at these like animations, you know like two D animations and stuff on 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 the on YouTube, it, it's not often it's not always like these like like high budget like super accurate like three D. Do you know what I mean? Like face animations. You like our brain is so wired to picking up emotions from the most from the barest thing like if you start yeah like even i mean like little kids playing with like sticks or rocks or stuff and they make whole stories with them Mm -hmm. and ascribe emotions to those things you don't need you don't need all those things to to tell a story yeah and you don't need words either
1: yeah Yeah. pacing and pausing you know at least include like including that in a writing perspective can be much more powerful than any kind of dialogue and i think i don't know there's a great drill that you can do where you write a scene with only dialogue and nothing else, but I think you could do the opposite and make a scene just as powerful or more powerful as a writing drill.
0: Yeah, totally. I think pacing is one of the biggest weaknesses of a lot of game stories. Definitely. That it's hard to I have no this is a bigger tangent. I'm just saying this cuz I I've always thinking about it, but a lot of stories I think <laughs> I've been playing games recently that are simultaneously feel rushed and too slow where they don't give enough time to develop the characters but then feel like they're just barreling through plot and no nick cut this out <laughs>
2: <laughs> i know which game you're
0: referring yeah. to <laughs> oh no <laughs> it's no. a it's not a bad game it's just it's just frustrating to see it just
2: has fresh, weaknesses. Fresh. you just finished it yeah
0: Are there any talks or books or resources that uh, you go back to a lot when you're working on a game?
1: Ooh. Or
0: or medieval (laughs) texts?
1: I usually look at the reference material for the game itself Mm -hmm. and sort of question, like, okay, why is this effective? How does this work? Um, I also really like the YouTube channel Like Stories of Old, which is very fun and gives you kind of better write that down. Oh, they're fantastic, (laughs) Um, but they do a great job of giving you deep dives into pieces of cinema or other stories, and breaking down why a specific thing works. And so, sometimes if I'm in a slump or I'm frustrated, I'm like, I can't figure out the scene. I'll go to that. Um, I also really enjoy Matt Colville's series on YouTube for how to be a good DM from a storytelling perspective because. A lot of writing books are very author-focused and author-centric simply because it's a more one-dimensional type of media when you're doing it. But writing a video game, you have to consciously be aware of the player. So Colville's Guide, not only did it help me when I first started getting into DMing, uh, but also it continues to help me as... um, as a game writer, just in making sure that I'm not over-focused on what I want to get out of the game and what I want to put in, but also how is the player going to encounter this and are they having fun? Mm. And that goes, I mean, he covers everything like from world building to high level plots to little, you know, mini things that you can encounter, items, whatever. Uh, Those are are usually my go-tos.
0: Awesome. Francesca?
2: Yeah. for me, I think I mean one of the things that I do because it's so it's so de- it depends on the project. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I do consistently is um, I stream on the side uh, three times a week, and so I, I'm always very uh, conscious about uh, playing as, as much of as many games as possible to to basically you know have that those subconscious kind of examples of things in my mind when I when I work. Um, and I'm always trying to analyze the story and analyze the the different design choices that they've made while I play and I think you know over the past year that I've been doing it, it has really helped because i'm just I've just been exposed to so many more um games than i than I was before that um I think another another thing I do is yeah, I watch YouTube and it's not necessarily a single channel, but you know once you start watching a particular genre of videos um you get recommended like similar ones yeah. by different people. <laughs> yeah all the video essays exactly like video essays about different games different stories like video game uh game makers toolkit is is like a good one Mm. that i can recommend and and but yeah like lots of similar ones like that uh, are always great
0: so i use an online thesaurus or i always have a tab open do either of you use one and if so what is it because then i want to compare
1: (laughs) uh i don't have a particular thesaurus but funnily enough um I usually go to the Middle English Compendium, Ooh. Ooh. and let's see, let me find which university does it. There it is. It's UMichigan, they have a fantastic medieval studies program, um, and you can, you can type in a modern English word and it'll give you a middle English word, and a lot of times the Middle English words are weird, but they'll remind you enough of a different modern English word that you can riff off of it and go that direction. Because I have just fallen in love with the way medieval texts use language Mm. and it helps prevent me from falling into reusing the same words or the same phrases. And so I can go there and find something that maybe sounds a little bit archaic, but might, might be sort of the poetic tone that I'm going for. Um, mm-hmm. Something like that. I also have the, <laughs> it's the most pretentious book title ever, uh, The Thesaurus for Highly Literate People. Um, oh. And actually, let me let me grab it just it's to not make me sure then. I get it right. <laughs> but essentially, essentially, what you do is you like flip through it, and like you think of one boring word, uh, and you can find it, and it'll it'll give you a bunch of like fancy ways to say things, and a lot of that, like the whole thing is essentially a joke thesaurus. But occasionally, I'll flip through, and I'm like, oh, that's a much better word. Let me grab it so I get the title correct. <laughs>
0: These are both could be very useful for a future project for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Francesca.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's annoying because the the one that I used to use a lot, I've lost access to because um, I'm no longer at Oxford, and it's like a you, you have to subscribe. But the Oxford English Dictionary has a lot of uh, a lot of really interesting stuff, and I mean, it's not a thesaurus, but I love looking at the different you know the the ways that it, you can look at the ways that a certain word was used over the course of history mm-hmm. um and the great thing about it is that it gives examples of the word in different texts um so you can look at the the connotations of the word kind of within the context um and and that's sometimes really great for yeah but just <laughs> for writing
1: yeah so it is called the highly selective thesaurus for the extraordinarily literate <laughs> by eugene <laughs> elrich
0: <laughs> nice. i'll put it in our show notes yeah
1: <laughs> there you go
0: um yeah my the source is just power the source <laughs> yeah
2: i usually when i'm looking for synonyms i just google word synonym and then yeah google yeah. will
1: come up with a list that's the, the fast way to do it yeah
0: power the source used to be the best of that because it would give you like the best range of Similar words, but then it instituted a pay model for it. Oh, and
3: what a shame! Oh, no, it still is a good
0: list, but it's only like the first page of words, and I still go to it. But I have to find a new one now. Oh,
2: that's so annoying.
0: I've been told to use Word Hippo. I haven't. I'm it's still okay. It's yeah. Uh,
1: it's all right. It's okay.
0: <laughs> okay, that's all I need to hear. I don't need to use it then.
1: <laughs> I
2: I was trying to Google uh, the Power Thesaurus, and <laughs> you said Word Hippo, so then I googled Power Hippo by accident. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> they should combine their the sources that be the best one. Um maybe this is gonna be a bad question, but it uh eventually all the other websites made me wonder are there any other like writing or story web pages that you have always open on your in your browsers?
2: Oh man. W- like w- like what do you mean? Like
0: Well it's like all these like medieval ones I had no idea about. <laughs> like maybe there's something else like that.
2: <laughs> yeah, like uh, I mean I'll go down like rabbit holes, but those are specific to the kind of thing. Do
1: you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, not always yeah, totally. to open. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will say, as a s- shameless plug of uh, the podcast, the, <laughs> we have like what I call master lists, which I use all the time in my own work. So, let me see. We've got the DM's dictionary. So if you're looking for a specific cool word that you're trying to find or something like that, then I'll have that open. Um, or like we rank everything as well. So we have the best and worst that we've read. So if I'm looking for a really compelling text or a good example of something, I can flip through that list and say like, oh, okay, cool, here's a great example. Uh, we also have uh, Quest Posted, which is our master list of d and plot ideas for you to use and also like a turn of phrase so a bunch of weird phrases that we've come up with or that we found in these texts which um just a lot of a lot of weird funny things but also really cool no sayings and you know things like that oh no sayings are great oh they're my favorite
0: <laughs> <laughs> out of curiosity how many tabs do you both have open right now
1: Oh,
3: oh don't bajillion. ask that.
1: <laughs> Way <laughs> too many. <laughs> Always too many. On, on this particular set of windows or all of them?
0: <laughs> on this one. Oh, God. I can tell you I have, okay. I have 20 open at least.
1: Yeah, yeah, around that number.
0: Man, I blew, yeah. I've blew! i blown past, it sounds like all of you, like I had to Zoom and share my uh, workplace recently and when I had to go to my browser for one second, there was such a roar of disgust. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm always so ashamed of sharing my screen for that exact reason. Oh, yeah. Or I'll open a new window.
0: Before. I'm pretty sure, I'm like, <laughs> I'm pretty all sure. I have, like, all I want is, like, I don't need to use my mouse, like, scroll my tabs. Like, they're, they are like all fit on one window. So it's still going to be a lot, but I, just don't need, I don't need to go back and forth. Like, that's my dream.
2: Yes, yes. But, but I'm not there guys, yet. Do you use the feature of, like, grouping tabs that Chrome introduced recently? No, no. Recently? That
0: seems like a bad idea. Like, that's going to maybe be even worse then. I'm just yeah, going to keep opening more tabs. Just
2: going to have a bigger and bigger board. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't gotten used to using that yet either.
0: I have so many tabs open that there's no text on the tab anymore. It's just the symbol of the website. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs>
2: yep. mm-hmm. It's just like you know, anyone else is like, "How do you find it?" But it's it's your mess, so you know yeah. the
0: tabs. Yeah,
1: you are. know exactly which one. Yeah.
0: I knew what I was asking.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, do the criticism one. You need to ask it then. <laughs> so, giving criticism and feedback is a huge part of working with other writers. So, how do you both give good criticism and feedback? And then, what's the most helpful piece of feedback you've ever gotten, if you can remember it?
2: Ooh, um, man, good. Giving good criticism is is hard. It's a learned skill for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think I th- I think one. I mean, I can say how you don't give critis- criticism and feedback. <laughs> I think a lot of people, and a lot of experiences I've had so far, a lot of people think that um, being kind is like a form of lying, and you just you just need to kind of and, and honesty is, is inevitably kind of harsh and mean. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. And I think that you everyone should absolutely take the time and the care to be, to be kind um, when giving feedback while still being honest and, and still being, you know, firm with things when, you know, obviously when the situation calls for it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In terms of practical advice, um, I like to use the sandwich method, which is you sandwich praise that you have for the work at the beginning and at the ending. And then you can kind of put the bits of feedback that you want to give in the middle. Uh, and that way, it it feels better to give and it also feels better to receive. Um, and also, the and I'll, I'll I guess I'll combine the questions into one. The best piece of f- uh, feedback or advice, especially about giving feedback that I've ever gotten, is if somebody tells you how to fix it, it's probably not very good feedback. But if they tell you the vibe of what is wrong, then, mm it's much, much more likely to be good feedback. And the reason for that is because when someone is telling you how to fix it, they're telling you how they're thinking about it and not maybe what your aim of the work necessarily is. And so if they're telling you this feels off, they're not telling you how to fix it. They're saying, hey, I'm looking at it from the player's perspective. Uh, This feels weird. And if you want, I can give you some advice, but I'm just going to tell you what I think is off. Uh, and that way they're going to let you do your best work and let you pursue your vision and not their vision.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I yeah, I think I think, you know, that kind of encapsulates also the the importance of not trying to be too controlling. Mm-hmm. Not not being controlling at all. I think when you're giving feedback cuz you, you yeah. Just because it's not your work doesn't mean that yeah, exactly. I think for me, the best piece of advice that I've ever gotten, because, I, I mean, this is, it might be more specific to, to me personally, but um, I have quite perfectionist tendencies, and at times that's more of a hindrance than a help, um, and so I think the best piece of advice I received from Alexandra Smith, who was my co-writer on Ori, was that no writing is going to be good first time around. Yes. Um, so you just got to get it out there, and you just got to, and it's going to be bad, and you're going to hate it, maybe, but but it's there, you know, it's out there and that gives you the chance to work on it and, and you got you got to accept that. Mm-hmm.
0: It can only get better.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's a great phrase. Uh, the first draft is only meant to exist. The second draft is for shaping it into something usable. The third draft is for honing it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, like doing like the marble metaphors, honestly, the first draft is like you found the marble you're going to sculpt out of and you brought it into your studio. Yes. Everything after this actually sculpting it. Yes,
1: exactly, yeah. exactly. Hey, you know, yeah. it's like Ernest Hemingway said: "The first draft of everything is shit." Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah,
2: it takes the pressure off of off of like trying to squeeze things out of your brain. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah.
0: as long as everyone else is not expecting your first draft to be amazing.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you got you got to manage expectations for sure. Because I think not everyone. It's so difficult. I feel like one of the difficult things about being a writer is that people most people can like they are literate and they can write things on paper <laughs> so uh so it's it's sometimes not as easy to explain you know that it, there's 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 kind of more to it than just
1: um sitting down and writing something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah because uh oh, wait were you about to say something Zoe?
1: oh no no i was just gonna say like a lot of people underestimate how much skill and effort actually goes into writing yeah. and being very good at that and being able to shape words and it's it's one of the major, like, one of the major griefs in my life is watching English departments slowly crumble. Mm. Because I look at that and I'm like, oh, no. Because the more we break down the arts and the less we really lift them up, the more difficult it's going to be for us to, one, appreciate the arts, two, create the arts, and three, just functionally work with each other.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have nothing else to say besides <laughs> I agree. Like it sucks. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Uh <laughs> this is not related to what you just said, Zoe, but uh it's something new that uh has happened to me with getting feedback. But I had posted something uh recently for my team, and then they asked me, How do you feel about it? And then I had never been asked that for like at, like a first pass <laughs> thing, and like just like obviously it was a first pass. Like, I just the act of like me writing out like i know what problems were when i was writing like i know this is not great it's so, like writing it out like to like i'm not happy about this and this and this i already have my objective for, like what i need to do for my next pass and think verb having the chance to verbalize your thoughts about what you've just written helps you hone what you need to do mm-hmm. and give you an objective so uh other people ask that question to people when you get something i don't Maybe you two disagree. I feel like that's a shitty question to ask. That's like a leading question. <laughs> I
1: feel it could go. Yeah. Way.
0: Really? Yeah. yeah.
1: Because, it, because you are your own harshest critic. And so you're going to sit down there and be like, oh, if they're asking that question, then this must be total shit. And I'm going to go through and nitpick every little thing that I think sucks about this draft. And then I don't know how to do the next one. Oh, my gosh. I would overthink it personally. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, also I should clarify, he this is what this is not the only thing they said. Like they gave me notes. Okay, but they yeah, also yeah, asked yeah. like they like they so, finished I, by saying, How do you feel about it?
2: Yeah, I think I think the thing with it's so hard to have like a, a general like one fits all style of feedback because I think in order to be a good a good leader, you you one of the most important things is, is knowing the person that you're working with and knowing what works for them. Like what what specific style of feedback would work for them? Mm-hmm. And it sounds like whoever was working with you kind of knew that that would be a good thing to ask you because you you possess that you know that that's what prompted you to kind of think about what you were writing in a different way. But it sounds like for you know for example for Zoe it would <laughs> push her into a spiral that that wouldn't necessarily be
1: productive. Yeah, that perfectionistic mode for me is. It'll, it'll grab me and I'll just go down.
2: <laughs> yeah. Go down yeah. I, I relate to that. I think I would, I would do the same thing.
0: I think I've also have, I've uh, burned myself out on being a perfectionist. Like I have this internal knowledge of like, I don't need to do, I'm not doing that anymore. So like, I know how to pace myself with this. <laughs> oh, good. That yeah. gives me
1: so much hope that one day I can, I too can burn myself out of being <laughs> a perfectionist.
0: <laughs> no, no, it, it costs too, it's too, it costs too much. Don't go there.
3: Okay. okay. <laughs>
0: but for me hearing like if someone asked me how do you feel about it? that to me is like the equivalent of someone sending a meeting invite going hey can, hey guys can we talk for a second like
2: oh
3: uh, no and it's like
0: mm-hmm. oh my god i'm <laughs> i'm going to yeah. die yeah
2: oh yeah i feel
0: you oh uh, i just had like a a ten minute discussion about how that's the worst thing you could ever say to someone and like give them context please
1: yeah oh,
0: 100% okay um, each episode, we have our guests ask a question to our next episode's guests. Mm. Our last one, we had Ashley Swadowski and Graham Resick talk about horror in games. Wait, now so- I was warned. <laughs> so should, oh. we, should we save the Ashley ones for another episode because they're all no, horror no. ones? <laughs>
2: it's okay. I, I'm, you know, I'm happy to talk about anything. But uh, I, I basically the warning I gave was that I, I'm not a, much of a horror player. So I mean, the only neither is Zoe. So. Neither okay. I, so yeah, I the only no game basis. I played is like Phasmophobia, basically.
0: Just do Graham's one first, at least. They'll see how far. All right, fine. So Graham asks, uh, when thinking about telling a story or expressing a story, how do you incorporate the collaboration with the player slash viewer slash reader, and how much do you factor that into your creative process?
2: Oh, my God. <laughs> like, what? Wait, repeat that? Uh, is it just like, how much do you basically think about the 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 player's active role in the story while you're making the story?
0: Basically, yeah.
2: Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, that's the essence of a video game, isn't it? Mm-hmm, so it's kind of like mm-hmm. a ever-present maxim, I guess.
0: You'd be surprised at how many writers don't think about that. <laughs> or, <laughs> yes. or people who are... That's the
1: fascinating thing to me, again, is because I feel like traditional writers, authors, etc., are very inner-focused, and they're like, I write for me, which I completely understand. I also write my own work for me, but also I want to play with how the reader is going to interpret and and understand my text, which maybe, again, maybe this goes back to how we talked about how we read medieval texts. Uh, but that's sort of the context that I think about that in is, okay, cool. I've had to piece together writings that are hundreds of years old. What about what i'm writing do i want to be very obvious to be hidden or to have multiple interpretations because the one big thing that i find hilarious is that everyone's trying to find the interpretation of beowulf or the interpretation of this that or the other thing and it's like you guys those people were just like us they're going to write texts and they did write texts that have multiple interpretations and multiple ways of being read and a lot of that is very deliberate or maybe they use this turn of phrase very deliberately to provide two different meanings one of my one of my favorite examples of this is the old english riddles where a lot of Uh, them are they're hilarious They'll, they'll um say like oh yes you know it's it's causes tears and da da da. And for some reason, it'll read as extraordinarily lewd. But the answer is an onion. But of course, the point is that it's a double entendre, the entire thing is a double entendre. And so when you see stuff like that, and you realize, okay, this was written ages and ages ago, it's the same thing. It's the absolute same thing. So for me, when I approach more traditional writing, I also want to play with, okay, I'm going to deliberately give the reader a red herring or I'm going to make this very clear. I don't know. For me, it's absolutely essential. It's an essential part of creating any type of fiction uh, or any kind of story in any genre, in any form.
2: Yeah. Although I do think that it's it's more important in, in games yes. because uh, obviously, you, you know, players aren't kind of passive participants in the, in the narrative. Um, I do think that you need to have you need to establish your story first. You know, you can't involve the thoughts of how are we going to present this to the player um, at the very beginning because you need, yeah, because you basically need to kind of have like a vague idea of what you want to present in the first place. And then I think once you have that, once you have the world and once you have the story, you can think about, you know, how you want to execute it and how you want to implement it. And I think there it's very important to think both as a player and as a narrative designer. Mm -hmm. And writer, and um, yeah, and just think about you know how would you experience this from a player's perspective, and
1: yeah, it might be a poor analogy, but it's it's a little bit like dating. You want to have your non-negotiables and the stuff that you can negotiate on. So you you want to have your story hashed out. You're like, okay, these things aren't changing, and then later as you go through more drafts, it's like, oh, okay, well, their perspective might be a little bit different, so I'm going to compromise on this, or you know, whatever. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit like, I mean, the the medium that to me has the most parallels to games is is theatre. Because in theatre you have, you know, you can't really account for the, because it's all, you know, live, right? You can't really account for what the audience is going to be doing um, on that particular day, or how the actors are going to be behaving on that particular day. There's all these, like, you know, unpredictable factors involved. And in, in games, it's obviously, there's a similar thing of, like, um you know your your player your audience is gonna gonna behave differently you know depending on the day depending on the player etc cetera, etc cetera. and yeah it's just like you you it's almost like embracing that uh that you don't have full control mm, definitely right and when ma- working that using that to your advantage as opposed to letting it be a hindrance and something that that kind of scares you
0: right okay i thought i've way to ask one of ashley's questions so, uh, Ashley had asked, what sort of imagery do you find most evocative in horror? But I'm going to twist it to make it what sort of imagery do you find the most evocative in medieval literature?
2: <laughs> oh, 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 okay. Oh, my well, God. The- <laughs> That's a harder question. <laughs> yeah. Those are two very
1: different. <laughs> okay.
0: hmm. And we, we'll edit out this pause. That's fine. So you can okay, think.
2: Okay, okay. I okay. will
1: say, I will say, for horror, it's anything that. Is normal, but then is slightly off, or things that oh, oh my normal. god, you're so like right. a
0: screaming armor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, something, something like that. Like when it, whenever you're in one of those moments, like when you have an expectation oh, that, yeah. of the genre to be scary, and you walk into a place, and it's like this is fine, everything's fine here. Like you walk into a hotel, and mm-hmm. you've got like the jazzy little music playing, and nobody is there. Yeah, that that is the most evocative thing for me because you're combining the expectation of the genre with normalcy
2: yeah i have i 100 percent agree and like an example i can think of is like you know the stories where it's like you know my husband went missing for three days and he came back but he's not quite, like, only I can tell that he's just a little bit yes, off and it's yes. not, I know it's not him but no one else would ever believe me and now I'm having to live with this stranger and I don't know what, you know, what they did What's to him. going kind of on, yeah. Yeah, and that's horrifying because it's like, yeah, it's like the, there's the familiar mixed with this, like, with, with this terrible knowledge of, you know, something is very wrong. Um, yeah, I think, oh, in medieval literature, uh, the most evocative imagery, Yes, is the question. <laughs> Monsters, I think, just like weird creatures. I love those. I'm obsessed oh, with definitely. them. Oh, definitely. I love just like the weirdest shit that you know the just weird fantasy creatures that they come up with. Like, I wrote a paper on um, on draugr, which are like these. Um, <gasps> I, love I love them. them. <laughs> They're basically undead. Um, but like, but like a very specific genre of like undead things. Um, and, and there's like a couple of different ways even within like Icelandic traditions that they, that they work, you know, like sometimes, um, sometimes they turn into different animals and stuff and, and the way you dispose of them varies as well. And it's just, that, that's just super interesting. So yeah, just any, any like weird creature imagery.
1: I think for, for me, it's gotta be... Ooh, it's a toss up. I really, really enjoy the ritual of hospitality in medieval Mm -hmm. texts, because that it's so amazing to encounter it because you'll have sworn enemies who will kill each other on first sight. But the second that both of them are in one another's house or if they're in the same castle, they will not fight each other because honor is so important to them. And they can't screw up the guy's house where they're living or where they're staying. So mm. that's incredible to me. I really love seeing how imagery of honor versus feud works. Um, oh gosh, monsters are always fantastic. I really enjoy uh, sort of the traditional hero's journey where the hero goes into the underworld. I really like seeing how the hero can be a monster in of themselves Oh, yeah. That's probably my favorite, because we see that with Beowulf. Um, I'll try not to do spoilers, but I think that you can see that in The Last of Us 2.
2: <laughs> I thought you were going to say spoilers of Beowulf. <laughs> <laughs> it's been around for so long. Not everyone's no. ready yet. <laughs> Don't spoil it. It just came out. Um, but yeah,
1: yeah, I think understanding that the hero has a monstrous side and that that part is necessary to them becoming hero a hero is my favorite part of medieval imagery often because it takes on a very literal form in the hero becoming a monster for instance
2: yeah i wanted to add to the to the monster thing is that like on the one hand they're cool but on the other hand they say the the monsters that we are scared of i i guess that gives a good like segue as well into the horror thing the monsters that we create and are scared of at the time says a lot about kind of the the, the current, you know, social anxieties of, of the, the time,
3: yeah.
2: right. of the day, yeah. And so that's, I think that, like, researching and looking into monsters gives such an interesting lens into the anxieties of the time and uh, and the taboos, you know? And and uh, I think it's it's a very interesting
1: kind of way of looking into uh, a particular culture. Yeah, definitely. Jumping off of that, um, we've talked a little bit about the Toyn and Kukulan, and that's a very, very good example because the major issue there is of family boundaries and Cucullin turning into a monster and he eventually Mm. kills his foster brother uh, and his foster brother is put up against him in battle based on what the queen wants him to do and he laments this fact but he can't say no because he has a boundary of honor with the queen and it would be a horrible situation for him to face Cucullin or rather to not face Cucullin. And so instead Cucullin has to slay his foster brother and neither one is happy about this, but they still go through with it. And then same in Beowulf. The main issue for Beowulf is that there is a big hall, Herot, which is threatened by the monster Grendel and Mm. Grendel is not ever really described as not a person, um like there's grendel grendel's mother and the dragon in beowulf and we don't really know what grendel and grendel's mother are um uh, mm-hmm. but what they represent at least is a direct threat to house and home that grendel goes into to the ritual to normal exactly and grendel goes in yeah. and destroys it from the inside out so he's an outsider yeah. who comes in and destroys the home and then grendel or sorry then beowulf comes in as an outsider of that society comes in and tries to fix the home, but in doing so, he ousts the king's son. And so in that same mm. way, he's also be a destroyer of that kingdom. So what are you gonna do? It's sort of a no-win scenario. Yeah. I
0: have a question I'm gonna ask off mic when we're done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the last question, I think, what's a storytelling-related question you'd like our next guest to answer?
1: I've got one while you're, while you're thinking. Oh yeah, go on. Uh, Mine is what has been the single most unexpected piece of media or life experience that inspired you in a major way, and why?
0: Mm. That's never been asked before. That's great.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> writers find inspiration from everywhere, so it's always fun to hear what like the coolest one of those is. Mm.
0: Not J.R.R. Tolkien.
1: Not J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> Maybe I don't know.
2: I've always okay. I'm I'm really interested in in kind of the way that games create this uh, association between the player and the player character. Mm. Um, you know, and this kind of quote unquote immersion. Although you know, there's obviously been a lot written about that and, and the immersive fallacy and all that. But I'm I'm really interested in you know what has been the game where you felt most like you truly were the player character and most kind of quote unquote immerse in that, in that uh, personality on that story through that character. And what made you feel that way? That's
1: a good question.
0: Yeah. Also a great question. I don't know how I'd answer that one.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. I'm not ready to answer it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be sitting on that all week,
0: <laughs> but I am ready to end this podcast. <laughs> wow. I forgot, I forgot what we do. So, what do we do? Where can people find you <laughs> on the internet? <laughs> yeah. Are you guys uh, the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's like a, uh, So... Oh, yeah, okay. The, the really last question is, where can people find you both on the internet if you want to plug your podcast or your Twitch shows or your Twitter or anything? Or anything you're working on. Or anything you're working on.
2: Yeah. Um, so you guys can find me on Twitch. Uh, Twitch.tv slash Tiger Moth. And also on Twitter. Uh, also Tiger Moth. Tiger without the E. Because that was taken, sadly. Um, and yeah, I'm currently working on a project called Around that has a Twitter page. Um, the other project does not yet have a social media presence, but
1: yeah. Uh, and you can find The Maniculum Podcast at, well, you can first find the podcast itself anywhere where you listen to podcasts. And you can find us on themaniculumpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at The Maniculum, on Instagram at maniculumpodcast. Podcast. We also have a Discord. Uh, and if you would like to join our Discord, just ping us on whatever social media you so desire, and we'll make sure you get that invite. Yes, so come, come join us. We have... Tons of resources that we want to share with aspiring writers, current game writers, TTRPG yeah. players, like whatever. Just come join us. <laughs> it's fun. I'm joining. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there. And
0: then you can find this podcast on Twitter at Scriptlockcast And our art was done by Lily Nishida. And our music was done by Isabella Ness. And I think that's the episode. Right, Max? Yes. Leave us a review on iTunes if you want. And... Thank you both again for coming on.
2: Thank you so much for having us.